creating space for our young people to ask hard questions. We are feeding them a simple faith um, and we are not teaching them how to think through um, constructing a faith or having a faith. We're just simply feeding it to them and asking them to regurgitate it. That, my friends, is Tara Beth Leach, one of my guests today. I'll tell you more about her in just one second. If you've listened to the podcast for any amount of time, one of the things that you've heard discuss over and over again is the subject of deconstruction. Now, deconstruction is basically a word to describe what happens when someone has faith. Often they grew up in faith, they grew up a part of a church, they grew up following Jesus, and then at some point in time, the faith that used to work for them stopped working. And for some of us, what we did is that we went back through and did the exact same things we used to do over and over again, thinking that maybe the 10th or 12th or 13th time we do them, it'll finally work like it used to. But at some point, it it doesn't. Sometimes this is because you go through suffering, some form of adversity. Sometimes it's just because all of a sudden, the questions you have just seem bigger than the answers you can come up with. And what happens with deconstruction is often the faith that we grew up with is falling apart. And so we go through the season of deconstruction. And so that's the subject matter for the podcast today. And I will talk about a few other things, but the guests uh, that I have on today are two great guests. You're going to really love them. If you don't know Sean Palmer already, uh, he's been on a handful of times. He is an author and a pastor down in Houston. And uh, the voice that you just heard was Tara Beth Leach. She is a pastor and an author in the suburbs of Chicago. This is my first time talking with her. You might have heard of her before. I definitely hadn't, but um, I'd heard of her, but I didn't, like, I never met her before. But you're going to find this conversation, I hope, very meaningful. And so without further ado, here is Sean Tara Beth and myself doing the thing. Here we go. Let's get ready for some. Sean, awesome. I I rebranded like weeks ago. <laughs> it hurts that you don't even listen to that. But nevertheless, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have returning from Houston, Texas, Sean Palmer, and for the first time, joining us from Chicagoland, Tara Beth Leach. How are we doing today? Hey. Hello. Thanks for having me. Okay, so before the podcast, uh, Sean was breaking my heart, and the good news, though, is Tara Beth is on for the first time. I, I've known about you, and we've never had, a, had you on before, so thank you for helping me fix that problem and coming on the podcast, despite Sean Palmer's like just like hurting my feelings right in front of you. I was very entertained by the banter. As, a, as mm. an Enneagram 6, like banter and humor is my love language, so... So thank you for that. Were, were your feelings really hurt, Luke? Well, first of all, if I had feelings, they would be. But luckily, I don't because <laughs> I'm a seven who just hides those deep, deep down, and we never deal with them. Do we need to spend but, some time there? Because Tara, here, here's what happens. I listen to this podcast at the your monthly wrap-up podcast with our mutual friend Jonathan Stormit. And um, if – I listen to it for one reason, because if I don't, someone will send me a text message and it will say something like, did you hear what Luke and Jonathan said about you? Um, Here's the thing. If it's being recorded, it's not gossip because it's not (laughs) behind your back. It's in your ears. And so that's not gossip. It's and that's my my tweets get reported on and deconstructed. um, But all manner of things. Again, I am the president of the Sean Palmer hair fan club so i feel like there's room for me to say other things in your life because i'm such a big proponent for for you specifically your hair oh okay and and tara beth for all of it let the record show i have invited sean to my church to multiple churches where i've served 
he's never returned the favor. So with that being said, oh boy. <laughs> Tara Beth, you are in Chicagoland, west of Chicago, right? Yep. And you've moved That's there right. recently from California, Pasadena, right? That's right. Yep. From Pasadena. Okay. Uh, how do we like the Midwest? Uh, you know, I'm originally from here, so I'm back oh. home and it, it feels really good to be home. The California has, I mean, you know, it's, it's California. It's the golden state. There's the mountains, there's the beach. There's so much to love about it. Mm-hmm. And also after being there almost five years, you know, coming home feels really, really good. And I yeah. love the seasons. Um, I'm so excited for fall to come. And so I'm embracing the shifting of weather. Yeah. Uh, did you do undergrad? Did you academics in the Chicago area? I did. So I went to Olivet Nazarene University, studied youth ministry there. And then I did the MDiv at Northern Theological Seminary mm-hmm. um, in the Western suburbs. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so youth ministry was your undergrad, but uh, your last job, you were the senior pastor. What, what is like the um, like typical gender expectations of a senior pastor in the Nazarene kind of tradition? Yeah, so less than 7% of pastors are women within the Church of the Nazarene, um, which is a huge, I mean, there's a, there's a massive gap because somewhere around 35% of those graduating from our Nazarene institution studying ministry, whether it be our Nazarene seminary or undergrad, are women. Mm-hmm. And so we have a placement problem. So we are a church that has affirmed women in ministry uh, since our inception um, from day one. And, uh, and, and in the early years, we, we were somewhere around 40% of pastors were women, uh, pastors and evangelists. And it was, you know, the postmodern era that really began to shift things. And um, now we're, we're at 7%. In the 80s, it was all the way down to 1%. So we're making some progress, can, I suppose. Can you connect the dots on how the postmodern era caused a decrease in female pastors? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for sure, like listening um, and reading Jesus and John Wayne, I think she helps us connect those dots as well. Um, There's just so much happening, uh, so many important historical moments that kind of shift the dynamics at home and what we consider to be, you know, like family as as the most important um, within the the Christian um, mind. And so, you know, the wife at home, the woman at home and you know, we have a vision of a leader um, that is strong, that is powerful, that is is going to fight. Um, uh, Basically, and, Sean and, Palmer. That's the right. picture. Yeah, Com- completely. Yeah. And so women don't always, you know, fit that construct and fit that mold. And even when we do, it's it's seen very differently. Yeah. Okay. I don't mean to make this like a women in ministry podcast, because yeah. I assume you've had that conversation a lot. But like, so you show up at your... We wrote a whole book about it. I, okay, but I, <laughs> Miss, Mister, I, I did my homework. Okay, I didn't want to like. Here's the thing: like, I love you, talking about this. I could talk about, talk about this all day long. So you're good. Oh, okay, I just don't like to like pigeonhole and say, "Hey, you're a woman in ministry. Tell me what it's like to do a woman in ministry." This is this is the subject I'm most passionate about. Oh, so, you're yeah. most passionate about it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Besides pastoring and Jesus and all that, but yeah. Okay. But like, so you like you show up at a church in a denomination, like I'm Church of Christ. Like I'm hesitant to say the word denomination. Sean might not have this anymore, but I still have like this. uh, You can't say the word denomination. You get in trouble. It's a Church of Christ thing. Leave it alone. But you show up at your church in this denomination, which has had a diminishing representation of women in the pastorate. 
Shovi, your church, you're, I assume you're, we're, I'm 40. I think you're right on the same age as me, a little bit younger. Um, but you show up at your church as a, you know, a young pastor who's a female. Like that has to be less than easy, maybe? Yeah, it was it was challenging. And we knew that it would be challenging, but I don't think we fully understood what the cost would be. You know, especially going from uh, Chicago to Southern California, we thought, oh, we're going to Southern California. This is going to be a little bit more inclusive for women in the pulpit. You know, surely they're ready for this. And it was a church of about 1,900 and 600 people left week one. Um, And it was, you know, and even before our arrival, you know, after we had made the decision and discerned that we were going before arrival, it was controversy out of the gate. And so my gender became a lightning rod issue, which really polarized the church. You had people that were so passionate, so for me, and you had people that were so passionately against um, the idea of a woman being the senior pastor. And so what ended up, you know, coming along with that territory and that thinking was even, you know, attack against character and attacks against me personally. Um, but so at you, the bottom of that was gender. So you, you intellectually knew this isn't about my character. This isn't about me. But after right. a while, like some of that... It has to be easy for that to kind of seep in and go, man, this is really like an attack on me personally. Yeah. How do you like protect your soul in a moment? Like, I know, Sean, you've dealt with plenty of criticism for plenty of things. But like, Tara, like as you, you dealt with that, like, how, how did you keep your soul afloat? Or maybe yeah. you didn't. I hope you did. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, there were moments where I thought, how long can I sustain this before I do lose my soul? Um, before I do drown. And self-care was constantly a conversation. Um, I have the world's greatest therapist. In fact, I dedicated my last book to her, um, Dr. Laura Harbert. Um, And she really, you know, got me through that season. Um, uh, Lots of, you know, strong support system, an amazing husband. Um, I I really just, don't just say this flippantly, but I feel like I married like the greatest man Hmm. um, alive. And of course, besides you too, I'm sure you're also great in your own right. Um, Thank you. You know, and, and friends and, but it, it's hard. It, it does get to a point where you, you know, it's, it's not personal, but there is still a cost on um, the, the mind, the heart, the soul, the body, um, and even the family of a pastor when pastors go through this. Yeah. Okay. Sean, you've been you've served in churches that had a high white constituency. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Right. And do you think there's a comparison of being, uh, you know, a, a, a black man in typically white spaces in the same way that being, you know, a woman in a congregation where you have a, at least a, a good percentage of people who are not so excited about having a woman in that role? I mean, do, do you see any comparisons in some ways there's like a, I don't know, Tara Beth, if you felt like an outsider when you have a lot of your church that doesn't want you there. But, Sean, do you see any comparison there? Um, kind of yes and no, because I'm always wanting to be careful because there has been historically this tension between ethnic minorities and <clears throat> and women about kind of like kind of who has it yeah. has it worse, worse right? Yeah. And so there, I mean, so ethnic minorities would um, would say something like. Women are complaining about who pays the check, but minorities are complaining about being at the table, yeah. right? Um, and I don't know that that's fair to either one, right? Um, I don't know that that's a place that we want to go. I do think there's probably some shared experiences 
in that you are um, outside of what people have come to see as the norm for leadership. That's and so right. this, is, this is what I mean by that. Almost everyone, except sort of assimilationists and out-and-out racists, say they want diversity. And what they mean by that, when it comes to race at least, what they really mean by that is somewhere between 10 and 20%. Um, once you hit 20%, then you start hearing language like they are taking over, mm-hmm. right? And what yeah. it means is like we want, to, we want to have visual diversity, but not any um, cultural, intellectual, or theological diversity that would mm-hmm. impact us. We want enough yeah. that we can feel good about it, um, but not so much that it actually has the power to change a system. And I think maybe what Tara Beth experienced and what so many, I'm on a board of a ministry that uh, provides soul care predominantly for women in ministry. Um, what I tell people about ethnic minorities, especially African-Americans, is so many churches and organizations want a black face, but not a black voice. And I think there is a parallel to that for women, particularly in ministry. Like we want to feel as if we are being gender inclusive, that we're not misogynist. Yep. But we yep. don't think that um, we don't want women to lead us. Right. 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 So. Yep. Exactly. And, you know, within uh, the tradition that I come from and the churches that I have typically historically served in, um, oftentimes they love the idea of a female speaking in the pulpit now and then, though the church that I did go into, I was the first female to speak in the pulpit in 10 years. Um, But we we often love this idea of seeing women um, visible, but to a point. Um. You know, so for example, we're, we're okay maybe with a woman preaching now and then, um, at least in the traditions and streams of evangelicalism that I've often come from. Um, we're, we're okay with it to an extent, but just not every week. Um, we're okay with women on staff, but just not the senior pastor, just not the office of the senior pastor. We're okay with women on the platform, but just not too many. And so, and these are all things that I've experienced and encountered. You know, so for example you know, with women on the platform, when I got to Paznaz, it was uh, common for women to be on the platform. Um, And it was also even more common for the platform sometimes to be all males. So you have a male preaching, you have a male leading music, you have a male up there doing the prayer time and on and on and on. And it was never a conversation to say like, hey, like maybe we should like not have all males up here. But, But when we had all females on the platform, that's when it became like, apparent for people and we would get comments about it. We would get pushback on it. Um, and I remember at one point, you know, I had hired another female pastor on our staff and there was, there was a time while I was at Paznaz where I was senior pastor, we had a staff of, um, 20 or so in, I don't know, 11 pastors and four of the 11 were women. And we got an angry email saying that I had an agenda and that I was trying to take over the church with this feminist agenda because I'm hiring too many women. So it's like, we, we like you to be up there. Well, Sean, like we like having an, a, a black face, but uh, when a black voice is there, that's too much. Tara, it seems like Tara Beth, it seems that you have some people who just ideologically don't even want a woman's voice in the right. office of the pastorate. And that's right. Yeah. That's tough. Sean, when you're saying about uh, the percentage, I, I remind, I was reminded of um, a stat that, uh, Derwin Gray, pastor in uh, Charlotte area, said where uh, a diverse church is over 20%. Yeah. 
Right. And so under 20%, it, it's still like, this is a majority like white church. But once you get over that, all of a sudden your language of taking over seems to become real. Like, oh wow, like this really isn't just a white church anymore because now like the power has swung to some degree. I, I don't know if power is the right word, but. Yeah, there's a cultural shift that happens at 20%. Um, um, where then these these diverse voices begin uh, not only to inform what happens in a community, but direct what happens in a community. Mm-hmm. Um, because th- there are just too many, just numbers-wise. to So there, people think at 10, 15, 18% that they've got a multi-ethnic church. Um, but that's really different from having a multicultural church. And once mm-hmm. you hit 20%, the various cultures that are coming together in one place can no longer be held at bay by the dominant culture. They start mm-hmm. asking serious questions about, hey, why does the music sound like it does? Or why does the preaching sound like it does? Right. Or why, haven't any, why hasn't anyone spoken about things like Black Lives Matter? Um, like when we... Uh, and they're at the point at 20%, then you're at the point where church leaders start going, you know what, if these, if 20% of our church disengages from our life together, that's a real loss for us. So mm-hmm. we need to hear their concerns. So even right. where I am uh, at, at Ecclesia, what we have seen in the last two or three years, it was accelerated after George Floyd is our minority community saying, especially at our downtown campus, which is much more diverse, saying like, um, yeah, I get, like, I like Audra Assad and I like the brilliance, but what about doing some stuff like from Maverick City music, you know, mm. that why doesn't our worship sound more like that? And that makes everyone go, well, do we have the talent pool to pull off that style of music? Do we have people? So, and then that begins to actually shape the experience for everybody once you start bumping up around 20 percent and i think folks intuit that and so that's when some when someone comes in a position of influence in an organization or the numbers get to be to a certain level that's when you start to see the resistance to um to either whether it's women or ethnic minorities that's why i don't like pitting women against ethnic minorities because we're fighting the same battle Mm-hmm. Um, not against white men per se, but against expectations of leadership and authority. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, that makes sense. For the record, I wasn't trying to pitch you against each other. I was just <laughs> no. trying to yes and. And now I feel really judged because on my uh, Squadcast image, like you guys are both at a quarter screen and I'm like half screen. So I'm like way bigger than both of your voices on the screen. So I feel very... <laughs> like insecure about that. So let's change the subject. Um, <clears throat> the real subject that I want to do this podcast about uh, actually was inspired by a quote from a piece that Tara Beth wrote uh, recently. And I want to read you this first part of the quote. Um, Not only is this long form expose, one of the most well executed podcasts I have ever listened to. Now that was referring to Mars Hill. Um, That's right. When, now that you're on this podcast, do you feel like you would rewrite that sentence or say one of the the many well-executed podcasts? Would you say anything different is what I was asking now that we've had 17 minutes together? I absolutely would edit that. You know, and I could probably after this get into word 
word, WordPress okay. and, okay. and change yeah. that. No, I, I mean, so, I'm not saying you need to do it like right no, away, I know, but, but you're right, right like, away. Like, but like, yeah, yeah d- down the road probably would just, be the right thing to do. And on, and on the pecking order, I hope you heard that, that Tara Beth can actually go into WordPress and change and edit her pieces for Missio Alliance. I cannot. They won't what? let me. They, they hmm. said, yes, just send us what you're doing and we'll fix it is pretty okay. much what, what I get. No way. Well, I'll, I'll let you guys pray about that and figure <laughs> out what the right course of action is for your relationship going forward. But uh, the rest of that piece uh, brought up a subject matter that I would really like to discuss, which is deconstruction. And yeah. so I've been doing uh, this podcast, obviously, unbeknownst to Tara Beth, for eight years. And... Um, <laughs> um, um, one of the things that when I started the podcast was a central conversation was about deconstruction. Now I was like early thirties at the time. And for me personally, that was my kind of like my experience. Like I was going through deconstruction. I had decided I was going to be a pastor. I was serving at a congregation, graduated from seminary. And all of a sudden the faith that I had kind of started with wasn't working for me. And so I found a lot mm-hmm. of these deconstruction conversations to be meaningful yeah. because they were kind of like what I was going through at the, at the time. And so one of the things that we found about deconstruction is that there are a lot of people, especially who now or over the last handful of years, that have wanted to talk about deconstruction. Actually, my first book was like, hey, I'm a pastor. I'm having doubts. And I thought that was a really novel idea. And so I write it. And then like two years later, when it comes out, like I had literally a stack of other books that were like, hey, I'm a pastor and I've got doubts. Hey, I'm a pastor and I got questions. Hey, I'm a pastor. My faith has uncertainty. Yeah. I'm like, ah. Miss that one, like because like, everyone mm. seems to be writing about it. As mm. you're writing about this, Terabeth, and obviously Sean as a pastor, you're, you're seeing this as well. Why do you think deconstruction is a subject matter which so many people are talking about at this time, or especially over the last handful of years? Yeah. So deconstruction, you know, as, as I did mention, the piece is not a new phenomenon for sure. It's something that um, thought leaders have been talking about for a long time. It's something that. Anyone who ends up, um, you know, in a systematic theology class and you read Jürgen Moltmann, um, just deconstruction, you know, is going to begin. Um, and I think, you know, many of us pastors, like we've, we've gone through that. I mean, I went through that, um, you know, in 2002, you know, probably again in 2006. You know, there's so many different points where I realized, like, man, the faith that I was fed in my teen years is... Is, is anemic. It's weak. Um, and, you know, part of the process that we go through, you know, as pastors is we learn how to think. Uh, we learn how to um, think through like this reconstruction of our faith. But what's happening, I think that is newer. Um, and I'm not a sociologist. Um, uh, you know, I'm sure that, you know, church historian or sociologist could articulate this better. But what's newer is we have people with platforms now um, that began by influencing Christian culture and Christian youth um, for the glory of God, uh, influencing Christian culture to edify the church. And then they very publicly went through a deconstruction and young people, and it's not just young people, but um, I, I would say maybe it leans that way, um, are watching these thought leaders and they themselves, um, you know, maybe never learned how to think um, or reconstruct their faith. And they're following these, these mega thought leaders, you know, that have very publicly deconstructed and are now, as, as Mike Cosper talks about in the podcast, like evangelizing people in that direction, influencing people to deconstruct. And so what we're observing now is just this 
movement or this phenomenon of young people that are deconstructing, 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 and it just doesn't end. And eventually they throw in the towel their faith altogether. They're jaded. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're wounded. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, like they're feeling jaded and wounded for a lot of really good reasons. And I think it's time for pastors to wake up and point the fingers back at us. And, and as I mentioned in the article, like, of course, like there are moments that I want to like point the finger at the Joshua Harris's and be like, come on, you are like leading my sheep astray. And I mean mine, like, just because I view what I do as a shepherd, as a pastor, as a very maternal um, act. I, I just view it that way. And so I feel kind of mama bearish about this, yep. but at the same time, like we've got to deal with ourselves first. Mm-hmm. Sean, when you hear conversations about deconstruction and obviously p- public figures, Joshua Harris, um, who was mentioned in that Marceau podcast, which we've uh, talked about a few times here on this podcast, um, is uh, you know a notable example of the guy who is famous for writing uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, um, which, side note, my girlfriend when I was in high school gave me a copy of that book, which was a real passive-aggressive way to break up with me, and I'm still bitter about it. So am I <laughs> upset about him like being thrown under the bus? No, I'm not. But it's not for good reasons. It's just because I'm bitter about that still. Um, but So he writes this book, sells you know, a million copies or whatever he does, and then 20 years later, he said, ah, I don't identify as a Christian anymore. Sean, w- when you're hearing people talk about deconstruction, there are probably a, like a, a ton of reasons why people are saying they're going through deconstruction. Like, wh- what are the big ones you think for reasons and issues that people uh, go into deconstruction? Well, you know, it's pretty varied. I remember reading for the first time in seminary Barbara Brown Taylor's book, The Preaching Life, which you guys have probably read. And she talks about mm-hmm. that disorienting moment when you mm-hmm. begin seminary and the first person mentions to you documentary hypothesis theory, right? And so your world, your your world of the text and all that begins to sort of uh, fade away in a, in a certain way, but you're in seminary. So you've got all these great women and men and these other people on the journey to help you along and, you know, along that journey. And like when you were doing your deconstruction, Luke, like having this podcast as a forum to do that. So you were able to say, I want to sit down with N.T. Wright. I want to sit down with Brian McLaren. I want to sit down with people like Richard Tara Beth Leach. And, yeah. Yes. And uh, yeah, <laughs> eight, eight years later, she and, said and yes. In eight years, I'll have Tara Beth on. Um, yeah. <laughs> and like, so you had people to help. You had a community to help you put it together. And what we've seen, what I've seen, and Jeff Holsclaw and I talked about this on Palmer and Holsclaw show we did like last summer, is this idea of what's being deconstructed really isn't the Christian faith, it's fundamentalism. And so That's many right. of the questions that people are asking, other faithful Christians have asked for centuries, mm-hmm. and there are really good responses. Yep. And so we fall into this thing where you take someone like Josh Harris, who I don't know him, like God bless him and his journey, that's had to have been hard. And here's why I am sympathetic to him. He writes a book when he's 17, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it becomes a right. wildfire. Like the three of yeah. us have written books. What the hell would we have said at 17? Right. 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 Like it's too much too soon. Mm-hmm. He becomes a pastor of a mega church in his mid twenties. He's never stepped into a classroom of right. any kind. He's right. never been to He's never been to seminary and not to say that those things are just warehouses for all the things that you need. And there's not a place for God to speak into your story. And we've seen this in other podcasts of what happens when people um, have too much influence too soon. When I was in my early thirties and I was thinking about a career 
in, in writing books. A great friend of mine told me, like, no one should write a book before they're 40. And I don't think that that's necessarily a hard and fast rule. But what he was signaling was, like, you need to have put some miles in before mm-hmm. you begin to talk in an authoritative way, speak into, in an authoritative way in people's lives. This is the thing that scares me most as a, as a teaching pastor, as a preacher, is that someone might believe me. And then orient their lives around something that I say. And you don't have the clarity of that that early in your life, right? And so, of course, he's deconstructing because everyone eventually does. Just like everyone eventually goes through adolescence. Like everyone eventually deconstructs. And not because they were handed something that was wrong but because you start to want to put this together in ways that make sense for you and your world. And we got to make sure that when you live in a country where the Southern Baptist denomination is the biggest Christian denomination in the world, are people deconstructing Christianity? Are they deconstructing Southern Baptism? And like, at, and to what end? Like, There are other podcasts, which I don't think are as good as this one, Luke. Amen. Their whole... Their, their whole raison d'etre is deconstruction and it just deconstructs and deconstructs and deconstructs and there is no end to it. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And it leaves people ultimately with nothing because it tried to offer nothing but deconstruction itself. And so if we tell people like deconstruct to deconstruct, um, then that's eventually everything becomes, I mean, whether it is or not, everything becomes a social construct Everything becomes some, like a conversation to have. Like you've got to e- eventually healthy people um, have to land in a place to put life together. And people like Paul Ricoeur and others have talked about the hermeneutics of suspicion and uh, the cycles of deconstruction and reconstruction forever. It's not that we're doing something that's new. It's just that we're doing it badly because we're not mm-hmm. doing it in community with people. We're doing it mm-hmm. through podcasts. Um, with people who are not formed spiritually to help guide us through that process. Mm -hmm. Um, When the lead singer, I can't remember what Christian band it was now. It's been a couple of years, came out and said, like, I'm not a Christian anymore because of these questions. And like, oh, he's in the middle of deconstruction. These were not silly questions, but these were questions that a wise youth minister would have addressed when you were 17. Like, um, it's not, we're, we're not any more sophisticated we do lack community to, to yep. handle these questions and to talk right. through these questions. Right. And we lack, and we have turned, quite frankly, the pastors, we've turned pastors into business people who have to lead large organizations rather mm-hmm. than a life of study and guidance and prayer. Yeah. Wow. So, Beth, you've got this line in that piece for Monsieur Day where you say, too, too many of us are busy doing so. This is uh, like endless spiral of deconstruction. Too many of us are busy doing so by defending a toxic form of Christianity. Mm-hmm. What does it look like to defend a toxic form of Christianity? And if we're not going to do that, what should we be doing instead? Yeah, I think it shows up um, in you know culture wars, um, Christian nationalism, um, patriarchy, toxic masculinity, or even toxic femininity. Um, our view of, you know, salvation, uh, which is so hyper individualized, our um, obsession with, you know, um, uh, hitching ourselves to a uh, political party and a belief that the kingdom of God is going to be enact- enacted 
through a president or, um, you know, through a political party. And so we've, we've hitched ourselves and we've called this Christianity. I recently heard someone call it Americanity, uh, which yeah, is just such a, a better phrase for it. And so we have Christians on the front lines that are fighting this through like with a very culture war posture and blaming the culture. Meanwhile, and, and we're defending it. Uh, meanwhile, we have a generation that's waking up that that is a toxic form of Christianity. And we are bleeding out and we are way too busy fighting something um, as we are bleeding out. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it sometimes deconstruction is just getting rid of something that needs to be eradicated. And mm-hmm. we don't understand <clears throat> that the Christianity that is there underneath all that stuff is actually what we're supposed to find in the first place. Yeah. Like, some, sometimes we don't realize that deconstruction is really trying to lead us to a better understanding of w- what God has given us in the person of Jesus. And yeah. so I, like deconstruction itself, I think is really helpful. Like if, if you're asking mm-hmm. hard questions that didn't get asked like that, you need to do that. Not, not everyone yeah. goes through the process. Like some people right. it's just, that, that's not them and that's fine. But for many who find themselves asking these questions, instead of being afraid of asking the questions, be afraid to not ask questions if those questions that you're asking could possibly lead you to something better. And so the questions that we need to be asking is like, wait a minute, maybe these attachments to all these secondary pieces really are just adulterating what the real central thing that we're supposed to hold on to. Like all of a sudden the pronouncement of Jesus is Lord and the kingdom of God becomes secondary to all those other things that you just listed off from politics to gender stuff. And all those things become just as important. And maybe deconstruction is trying to get us to something better in the first place. But Sean, you mentioned this earlier, typically a an issue or a cause that leads to unhealthy deconstruction is a lack of community. And mm-hmm. so if I think one of the big differences of like an online thought leader or an influencer, I guess is the word we use. And someone who's like rooted in the local community is that the influencer doesn't have the level of accountability that someone who right. sits next to people who have different opinions on these issues every Sunday right. and receives the sacraments with someone who, oh, I think differently politically than you. Oh, oh, I think differently about atonement theory or, provi- or, or sovereignty of God, like providence, that kind of stuff, which all of a sudden mute those issues and make those not as important. So when someone's going through dis- deconstruction, in what ways can someone align themselves with a community that helps sustain them during this season so the season doesn't become like the ultimate destination of their faith? How could they do that? I mean, it's it's really difficult just to show up one day at your uh, at the local church and say like, who else has been going? Who else is going through deconstruction? And ask these questions. Um, I, I think, and you know, at some point in my life, I'm going to do a project on friendship. I think one of the things that's been lost is true deep friendship, where you can actually ask questions and not mm-hmm. be afraid when you get them, and people who are asked questions won't be threatened by having them asked. So I think part of it, part of a healthy deconstruction is immersing yourself in a community to begin with, right? Um, And deep calls to deep, you will find people in that community who are asking similar questions than you and who are finding resources. But I also think it means kind of pushing against our increasing inclination to go find some sort of virtual mentor. Um, And like, I'm all for books. I'm all for podcasts. I'm all for, hey, I really like this girl, so I'm going to listen to her sermons online. But those people don't know you, and you're not a part of their community. 
Mm-hmm. And so the thing that you said that you, they said that you found so interesting and provocative may not have been intended for the way that you heard it to begin with, because they were speaking to something in their community. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you are out there and there, there's just certain places where we need to ask, like, am I, am I trying to, am I attempting to, um, harness a robust, viable faith? Or am I deconstructing to simply deconstruct? Because mm-hmm. right now it's cool to deconstruct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there is a form of asking questions that has become idolatrous in that, in the sense that, oh, you're really cool if you ask a lot of questions and you're just sort of old fuddy-duddy if you have answers. Like, yep. people need space for questions. We also all need space for conclusions. That's how life works, right? Like, you, like nobody, nobody lives their life only with questions. Like, it, mm-hmm. you can't function that way. But yeah. you can't function healthily in a life that doesn't ask deeper questions. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I don't think, know how you do that without other people. No, I agree. Now, if you listen to this podcast, I, I, I can be your spiritual guru. And so like other podcasts can't, but like this one, you guys know me, we're best <laughs> friends, which is good yeah. now, but other podcasts are terrible about that. They can't do that. So, um, Terabeth, one of the things that you mentioned earlier is that this is also an invitation for us as the church to look at ourselves and yeah. to not just like point the finger at the fill in the blank, whoever's doing this most recently and most pop like with the biggest platform but to say like this says something about us as someone who's a pastor in what ways does this like speak to things that have um like fallen short on our side of the fence yeah so we aren't creating space for our young people to ask hard questions we are feeding them a simple faith um and we are not teaching them how to think through um, re- constructing a faith or having a faith. We're just simply feeding it to them and asking them to regurgitate it. And we're not creating safe spaces or giving permission to ask questions. And so then when they start to ask questions, all of a sudden they're believing that there's something wrong, you know, with me, like, or there's something wrong with, with my church. And so I can't deconstruct this or I can't ask these questions connected to my faith community. I'm going to have to find it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, And so we have got to get in the game. Pastors and leaders and churches have got to get into the game. And we've got to put ourselves um, into these conversations and create these spaces and name it uh, while our people are still young and and create that space for them to ask those questions. Can can you flesh out that like that simple faith? Like, what does that look like compared to one that like is more sustainable for questions and yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's, it, it's tricky too. talking. I'll, I'll, I'll couch it first just by saying it's tricky because I have nine and 11 year old boys and trying to explain the gospel to them, trying to explain the cross to them in ways that they understand or trying to explain eschatology in ways that they'd understand. Like I'm constantly checking myself like, oh my goodness, is the way I'm explaining this, are they going to be upset 10 years from now because they're going to feel lied to? You know, and so because I think we all have that moment where, you know, anyone who's gone through a deconstruction process, you wake up and you you think I've been lied to my whole life. Now, obviously, our pastors and parents weren't lying to us, but we do have that feeling. And so what I mean by simple faith, though, is like I do think that we have an anemic um, articulation of the gospel. Um, And, you know, of course, like 
so many scholars like N.T. Wright and the other like Old Testament, right? Christopher J.H. Wright have helped us have, and Scott McKnight have helped us have more of a robust um, gospel. But, you know, the simple faith of this, this very individualized faith that my faith is about me. Um, we have the ordo salutis or the via salutis that the way to salvation is, you know, step by step, you know, justification, salvation, glorification. And if you, you know, allow Jesus to come into your life, then someday you can go to heaven. And so our eschatology is always about a someday and we're missing out on the here now. Um, that that you know God's kingdom would come in my town as it is in heaven, which then like even if we think about like the kingdom of God here and now and coming now as it is in heaven, you know, then we're going to think very differently about how we live life here on earth instead of this escapism. Or we're going to think very differently about justice and conversations on race and gender and politics. Uh, and so I think at the root of all of this is not just, um, you know, just, Christian nationalism or, you know, gender or um, politics, like that's the tip of the iceberg. Underneath all of that is is a theology in which we have, um, have I guess, reduced or we've watered down um, that has, has created um, a lot of these issues that are frustrating uh, people that are causing them to de- deconstruct and walk away. Yeah, if if the gospel is just this transaction that y- you sign up uh-huh. for this really great deal, like you say right. this prayer, you you get baptized and you get eternal life, like that's a pretty good transaction to be a part of. But then all of a sudden these secondary pieces are just that like they they are tertiary, they're not really connected, it doesn't really matter about those things. But when the gospel is a pronouncement about Jesus being Lord and our response is to make that declaration and to live out that declaration, all of yeah. a sudden, like every area of your life, every facet of your life becomes a reflection of that declaration you're making. Right. And it is a statement of saying, this is really what I believe. It's not like, hey, I just got this good deal on my, my car insurance, so now I'm great and I can move on to other things. But now it's, hey, I, I, I've got this one thing that I'm pronouncing with the entirety of my yep. existence. And it calls you to a different level. That's right. That's right. And I, I don't think that a lot of people that we are bringing up in the faith and young people are, are hearing those things. I mean, predominantly we're hearing about the escapism or transaction or, uh, you know, and so, and it's just amazing too, because when you read scripture, like it is so subversive, like Paul, it just subverts, um, you know, authority and power structures of the day everywhere by declaring Jesus as Lord and he is servant of the Lord. And so it's, it's everywhere in scripture. And yet, we're still, you know, picking and choosing and, and handing a simple faith to our young people that they're waking up and realizing one day, hey, I think I was lied to. Yeah. Sean, when you're preaching and you are trying to help your congregation to experience not this simple, like, transactional gospel, but a, like, a, a full-throated declaration of Jesus is King, what does that look like on, a, like, a week-to-week basis? Um. That's a great question because, um, thank you. And I know you guys, you're welcome, Luke. Um, I know you guys don't see it this way, uh, because you are exceptional homileticians, but you know, the average person thinks of a sermon in a vacuum and I don't, I feel like it's, um, it's this, that, that people are shaped over time through your, through your preaching. Um, and so, for me, the way that that looks is is at first letting people know what a sermon is. Like, this isn't going to solve all your problems. 
and this isn't going to answer all your questions, but this is an announcement that God is up to something in a particular way in the world. And so having reiterating that over and over again. Um, and people also need to know, like there is actually, like there's always more to the story than I can cover in 25 minutes. So I mm-hmm. like, I'm one of those people who will say frequently, probably too frequently in the middle of a sermon, like, like, like you need to hunt this down. And people who talk with me after, um, and the same thing happened with my daughter in the middle of her deconstruction. And she was thinking like, oh, I don't know that I believe in God. And I said, you know what? Lots of people don't. Um, but like, don't not believe in God because, because you think it's cool. Like chase, like follow it all the way to the end. Like chase it all the yeah. way down. Like, um, and I think people need to know that there's just more that's happening than this charismatic moment that's going to shape you for uh, into the likeness of God. And, and that we're like pursuing something that this moment can't necessarily meet. So I think mm-hmm. there are ways to do that um, in sermons that say like, I, I am giving you something that's really important for you to know, but it really is. And that's why we're always pointing people back into ways they can be involved in community in relationship with other people. Um, because that's where the, that's where the true and deep, action happens. Yeah. Um, so the way I carry that is that I think people are prone to do three things with a message, like think something about it, do something about it, or feel something about it. And I always want to drive people, depending on their personality and how they're in, entering into the world, to embrace the part of them that's actually going to take this and it become meaningful, knowing that uh, meaning means different things to different people. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's good. It seems mm-hmm. when you reduce preaching to like, hey, I've got you know t- thirty minutes or twenty five, or if you're Episcopalian, twelve, which is a ripoff. Um, you only get a few <laughs> minutes every. What are week. they even being? What are they even being paid for? It, do- it doesn't count. It doesn't count. <laughs> like that's why they wear the robes and all that stuff. Like, hey, look at me. This is important. But you only get twelve minutes, so it's not. Uh, I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, but kind of. But the thing is. When you think about it, it's just like this short amount of time. It, it almost like leads you toward towards a transactional gospel because you have a short amount of time. You got to make it like sell really quick. You got to get it out, communicate it, understood. But for me, one of the things that I've done recently is I've started writing my series like as one word, like word document. And so I have like a you know thirty thousand page or 30,000 word, it's not pages, that'd be long sermon series, but it would be like, so I see the entire thing is like, Hey, I've got 12 weeks to try to articulate this singular idea. And I don't feel rushed to do it in a single week. Now we all know people are coming to church less. So it's probably fraught with some peril because people aren't actually going to listen to all of them. Um, I think most numbers are now like once every six weeks post COVID, which is pretty terrifying. But Terry Beth, when you think about trying to preach this like bigger gospel instead of this transactional thing. How, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, I am constantly um, aware of this, I guess, tension um, that I am always feeling as a pastor to be able to articulate a more robust gospel, um, kingdom theology, while also being able to do it in a way that I don't sound like, you know, an arrogant a uh, pastor who just loves to sit in an ivory white tower and use big words. So, you know, I think... Sean's probably, the one who uses the big words, Yeah, <laughs> as we've already seen. You know, I remember um, probably one of the greatest advice comes from uh, Scott McKnight. Once he's in a New Testament class, he said, pastors ought to hide their scholarship in the pulpit. 
meaning like we can articulate, you know, a beautiful, robust kingdom theology um, without name dropping like all these scholars um, and using like all the ology words. Uh, and so it is definitely an art and a craft for the practitioner to articulate this in a way in a single sermon um, without watering it down. And so, you know, for me, like I'm constantly thinking about like in this sermon, how can I reshape their kingdom theology? How can I reshape what it means to be born into the people of God instead of just saved as an individual? Mm -hmm. How can I, you know, reshape, you know, their understanding of the cross. And so I think in our sermons is always an opportunity for us to offer that. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. So the, the way that I can think about that is like, you never preach your exegesis. Like, and you have to have a super good reason to ever mention a Greek or a Hebrew word. Like there's no other way. Super good reason. (laughs) Um, Yep. Because I think fundamentally, and this is kind of like to to your question, I love what Tara Beth said. Like the idea is like, because what the thing, I think maybe the only thing you can do in a sermon is reshape imagination mm-hmm. about, about how people see the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and what ha- I mean, it became transactional because it felt so good to have altar calls. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, no one amens something they've heard for the first time. Hmm. Like, so you have to, like, you're shaping people wow. over Sean. time. Wow. Yeah. That's really good. That is um, really good. Who'd you get that from? I'm sure I stole it from somewhere. <laughs> uh, you know. That's good. Uh, no one amens something there for the first time. I yeah. love that. Yeah. I mean, think about it, Like, you've never gone to a concert. Like, I'm old enough now. Like, I go to a concert and someone says, I'm going to play one off the new album. And everybody's like, bathroom break. Like, like it's, <laughs> yeah. it's like, yeah. Play, play the stuff we know because that's what we're connected to. Yeah. But all that to say, like, um, the shaping of imagination. I think this is what Tara, Tara Beth's piece gets to. Like, um, we have failed to shape an imagination that can stand up to the world, and d de- and um, a Christless life looks very attractive. Mm-hmm. If the imagination we've given people is all that there is. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. Well, guys, I, I think we've pretty much solved the issue of deconstruction. I, I think so. Yeah. I think I mean, this, this is an award-winning podcast. It is. It's, uh, some might say it's the most well-executed podcast they've ever listened to. Uh, yes. Now, Tara Beth wouldn't say that, but someone else <laughs> might. Well, uh, she would have to listen to it first to be able to say that. I mean, she might say that again. Yeah. She Maybe. might say that in the future. Maybe. I feel like we made a lot of headway. Uh, Tara Beth, I listened to one of your sermons, and I finally get your accent. Like, you're Midwest. Like, that's why you, that's, like, it's not California. It's like, that's a weird California accent. No, but you're Midwest. And so now I know okay. that. Uh, Sean, now I know you like to say the word raisin de tantre or whatever that French word is. Um, that was impressive. That was really... I was like, whoa, Sean. <laughs> yeah. And that's probably why you said something about people who use big words. But... Um, <laughs> It worked. I, 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 I too caught the shade on that one. Um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. Well, guys, thanks for the podcast. It's great. Uh, great having you on. And uh, we'll have to do this again. Yeah, thanks, it's Luke. fun. Great Thank you, here. Luke.